Well, if you have your Bibles this, uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at Exodus, and uh, it's quite possible this will be the last in our series in Exodus. Exodus is a, is a whole series of, of God revealing what he does, uh, God, God's way out for his people. And he allows his people to, to go through periods of suffering, uh, 430 years of slavery, and then he, then he brings them out. And in that, he manifests not only his power, but he also manifests who he is. And, and this morning, we're going to be looking at, at uh, who are you? And maybe you've had that experience where uh, somebody that you knew, or at least you thought you knew, and they, they did something that was somewhat shocking or disappointing and, and discouraging to you and say, well, who, who are you? Maybe something they said and, and something they didn't do or they did do, and it's, you're just kind of amazed. Who are you? Of course, it can be on the opposite side where, where maybe someone that you didn't think that highly of, and all of a sudden you, you see them in a whole different light because, again, what they said or what they did, and, and you're just amazed. Who are you? And as we think about it, this is the encounter that Jesus had with the disciples as well. You know, he, he came as, as uh, really as a nobody to the people that he revealed himself to. And, and when they would go on a fishing trip or when they would go on, on, the, on the Sea of Galilee and he would do something, they, they, they would sometimes remark, well, Jesus, who is this man who with just a word can calm the seas and calm the, the storms? And, and, and as we think about that, I want you to recognize as, as we talk about today and and uh, this was going to be a very short message, and then the more I put into it, I realized it got longer and longer and longer. So really, really this, is, this is really all I'm going to talk about today. We're, we're going to talk about just who really is God. How has he revealed himself? And he reveals himself uh, not only in you know, what he does and what's recorded in the Scripture, but he reveals himself in, in just even his names, but also in, in what he has said about himself. So, so hopefully in the midst of this, we'll all get a more... If not a, a, a deeper view, a just more um, sense of awe in the presence of who is this God that we have just sung about? Who, who is this God that we just read out of his book? Who, who is this God he's called us to pray uh, on behalf of the needs of others in our nation or world? Who is this God who's called us to follow? And if you, you've noticed since uh, the COVID days, uh, I predict the last few times, number of times in the outline, I've, I've given you the fill in the blanks already before you know, there are no blanks. They're already there, right? Now, trust me, I, I didn't do this because I wanted you to be lazy, all right? Okay, th- this is doing because there's nothing on the screen that's going to fill in where I, I forget to talk about up here. But I, I want you to think about this as, a, as an active part of, of understanding God's word as we, as we look at what God has said and we'll begin at Exodus chapter 30, 34, and, and then we'll kind of jump into some things that, that I'll, I will try to say not too rapidly, but I'm just amazed at how God reveals himself in his fullness. And uh, we're, we're going to see that today. Exodus chapter 34, he's just had the experience where he's, uh, he's surprised them, and you could say shocked them by the things he wasn't going to do. He, he, initially, he wasn't going to go out with them when they went into the promised land. I'm, I'm not going. And then as they wanted to get into his presence, they were, he was restricting the presence only to Moses. And he was going to reveal himself in a tent outside. And, and then, he, then he does promise some good news. And he says, okay, I, I am going to return. So you, you, can, you can look forward to that. I'm, I'm going to be with you. And then Moses comes to that point, I, I need to know more about you. Will you reveal yourself more fully to me? And in Exodus chapter 34, we see God doing that in a demonstrative way with the words out of his mouth. But catching up to that, in Exodus chapter 34, this is what we have recorded for us. Now the Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words 
that were on the former tablets, which you shattered. You sometimes wish that people would forget some things you've done or said. Well, here, here uh, God kind of reminds me, you know, these, t- these, these two tablets, which had the Ten Commandments, probably uh, each of the Ten Commandments recorded on each one of the tablets, one signifying their covenant that they were going to hold on, their agreement they were signing, the one that God was. And, you know, th- this happened and God's people rejected me, but you're the one that threw them down. And I, I didn't tell you to do that. In Exodus chapter 24, 12, it says that God initially made the first tablets. And now he's telling Moses, okay, you make the next ones. Uh, I, I'm reminding you that you, you're, you, you are, you, you're to own this, what we're, we're talking about, what we're recording. And, and then it goes on, it says, uh, and so be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. And I always like to somewhat highlight these passages because you know, God, God likes to do things in the morning. So if you're not a morning person, just become a morning. No, okay, no. It, it, he does a lot of things at night as well. But anyway, he has them come up in the morning. Then he says, verse three, no man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. And so God was still restricting and looking at Moses as a mediator between he and his people. And so he says in verse four, so he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. But I want to share with you a little bit, just uh, as we look at this book, there there are people who are enemies of this book, who who don't believe it's really true. And one of the reasons they don't believe it's true is because they're looking for ways to, to attack it. And, and one way to attack it is to see those contradictions in the Bible. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Well, you can't believe the Bible. There's all kinds of contradictions. Now, most of the time when you, when you hear that, you can just ask me, well, what are the contradictions? And for most of them, they can't respond to that. But there are people who have, who have Googled it. You know, are there contradictions in the Bible? And there's all kinds of lists that they'll give. And one of them could be right here because in that passage we read, and you probably didn't even think about it as I was reading it, in verse 1 of chapter 34, he says, now the Lord said to Moses, cut out yourself the two stone t- tablets. And then God is speaking here. says, and I will write on the tablets the words. So if we were having a test today and I said, well, who wrote the words of the Ten Commandments on the tablets? The answer to that is God. God did it because it says right here. But then you flip over a page, depending on you know, how your Bible is put together. Actually, this one doesn't flip over to another page. It's on the page. But if you read Exodus 34, at 27 and 28, it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, said to Moses, write down these words. For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Now, just reading on the surface, that sounds like a contradiction, right? So wait a minute. God says he's going to write it down. Now he's telling Moses to write it down. What's the deal here? Well, between verse 5 and actually verse 10 on, there were some other things that he commanded them too. So he's talking about writing down those commandments. But that doesn't necessarily answer all the questions of that because then in verse 28 says, so he was there with the Lord 40 days, this is Moses, and 40 nights. He did not eat bread or drink water and he wrote on the tablets, the stones of the covenant, the 10 commandments. Well, that doesn't answer it then because there it says that it wasn't just the commandments beyond the 10 commandments, it's the other commandments. Right here it says that, that he wrote, Moses wrote the 10 commandments. But if you look at it a little bit more definitively, you say, well, it doesn't exactly say that because it says, and he, that's a pronoun, wrote on the t- 
tablets, the words of the covenant, and the Ten Commandments. And I don't know if you remember English class where they say, what's the antecedent to the pronoun as far as who it refers to? You remember that? Who cares? Okay, who cares? Okay. Well, anyway, I just want to say here, that the he here, uh, it can refer to either Moses or God. Because it, it, he doesn't name him here. And I also yet need to know about the Hebrew language. There is no capitalization in the Hebrew language. So that wouldn't show it as well. And so in other places, it's very clear here in other places in Deuteronomy, it was God who wrote on the Ten Commandments with the finger of God. And so this is an apparent contradiction, but it's not a contradiction. You could easily translate this, and most translations don't because they don't want to impose their opinion on here, but you could capitalize the word he here, referring to God as the one who wrote on the Ten Commandments. That make sense? Okay, that's all for you who get a question like that this week, right? There really aren't contradictions in the Bible. There's only apparent contradictions in the Bible. There are reasonable explanations for every one of them. But as we look at this, what God does here, he says in verse 5, he says, the Lord descended from the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. So Moses calls upon the name of the Lord. And I just want to stop for a moment. This is the part probably I could have left out, but I put in. As we think about that, have you ever wondered what name of the Lord did Moses call out? Did God only have one name? You know, and for most of you, all of you only have one name? Most of you have a, you know, first name and a middle name and a last name. And some people have 10 names, you know, connected to them. And not only that, you have nicknames and you have all kinds of ways that people describe you. And as you think about, we just said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, one is to remember it's the Lord and we want to make sure we're blessing the real Lord. But God has many names in the Bible because he wants us to understand him fully. Because who are you? Uh, just what, what is it about you that I need to understand if I'm, if I'm calling upon you? And, and not even your notes, you just think about Jesus. A, at his birth, he was called Jesus. And what does the word Jesus mean? I guess you're not going to get that question right in there. Okay, you know, God saves. It's, it, Yeshua is how they say in the Hebrew, Yah, Yah, which comes from Yahweh. You could say God, Yeshua has to save, God to save. So Jesus' name had a significance to it. And we know that because in the text in Matthew chapter one, it said Jesus who will come to save you from your sins. So Jesus means that he is the one to save you from your sins. But is that the only name we get right at the Christmas story? Matthew chapter one, he's also called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So as we think about Jesus, we know a lot about him by recognizing what he's gonna do. He's gonna save us from our sin, Jesus. He's Emmanuel. How do you have the qualification to do that? He's God with us. He's God in, 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 in flesh. And there's so many other names for Jesus. And, and John, he's called the Lamb of God, again, who comes to take away the sins of the world. Uh, the, the children and there are other verses, I said, you, if you want extra credit on memory verses, talk to Edda. She's got all kinds of them that the children are doing. In John 8, 12, it said that uh, Jesus is the light of the world. In John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. In, in, in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And, and uh, this is just the ones there to you. I'm, that's, I'm just giving you those. Okay. And then it says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. And the idea there is he is the one in which you get life from. If you, if you detach a branch from the, the vine or the, the trunk of the tree or for the plant, whatever, it's going to die. But when we are in him, we have life. 
And so names mean so much. And, and just rapidly, looking at the time there, I just want to give you a few of the names that are in the Old Testament in reference to God. The, the first one, and we find this in the book of Exodus because we've been going for this, uh, the series in Exodus. We, we want to remind ourselves, how did God reveal himself to Moses when Moses says, oh, what am I going to tell people when I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I, I'm representing you and I'm going to deliver them? I, I, what, what name should I give? And, and God says, Yahweh. And Yahweh means he's the self-existing one. He's the eternal one. He's the one who's always been. And, and there's another word that's, and I won't go into all the whole history of that, that, that looks similar in your English translations. When you see Lord and it's all capitalized, that's Yahweh. When it's lowercase, it's Adonai. And Adonai is not a lesser name for God. It simply means he is the master. He's the leader. He's the one in charge. Elohim which is the one you get in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, in the beginning, help me out here, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the word Elohim there. And Elohim is in a plural form, which gives a, a declaration for them from the very beginning that there is one God, but within the one God, there's a plurality. And God reveals himself as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. But he is the supreme one. He is, he is the true God. And, and then we have, in some New Testament experiences, we have uh, Jesus re- speaking out to us that we need to re- recognize that God is not only the self-existent, eternal one. God is not only the one who is Lord and Master. God is not only the one who is the true one. But we can have an intimate relationship with God because he's our Abba Father. And so we can come to an, an endearment. And, and then you have those fancy words in the in the, in the Old Testament that you don't see referred to in the New Testament, I mean, in the English language. But the Hebrew words, El Elyon, he's the God most high. El Roy, he's the God who sees. El Shaddai, he's the God all-powerful. Yahweh Yiri, he's the Lord that will provide. Yahweh Nisi, he's the Lord my banner. Yahweh Shalom, Lord is peace. Now, I'm rapidly saying those, but as we think about those names, and, and these are going to be on the test, so you have to go home and memorize every one of these now. But just think about it. Well, well, who is your God? He's the God in the midst of everything going wrong, in the midst of that which is destroying me on the inside, and I'm, and I'm, having, I'm struggling. He, he's the God who, who gives me peace. He in the midst of, of life that is challenging, and, and we need to face this season in our nation, in the midst of conflict with peace, he is the one who gives us peace. Uh, in, in the midst of, of, of so many struggling whether their occupation is going to go bankrupt. I was in a restaurant yesterday that had just declared bankruptcy. And, and you're looking at all these, not only small businesses, but big businesses that are really struggling and, and, and where is their hope? Hopefully within their family and the church and their nation that has compassion. But, but who is the one who's really the one they can put their hope in? The God that will provide. And if you, if you really want to look at some of the, the amazing stories behind these names of God, and, and they, they're stated in, in, in sentence form, but the God will provide. This is, this is Abraham as he's offering up Isaac. And he's thinking that God has called him to do the unthinkable. But he provides the sacrifice on our behalf of the God that will provide. You think about the God who sees. 
you know, sometimes you kind of hope that God doesn't see too well. You know, yeah, there, there are a lot, a lot of times in my life I was hoping no one was looking. Any, anybody want to relate to that? Okay. Um, that happens often, even when I'm just driving, I hope no one's looking, all right? It, it is, is that God always sees. In, in some ways, that, that, that can fill us with fear because he always sees when we mess up. But, uh, but I want to let you know that God identifies himself in this, this way, God who sees Elroy, because he wants to recognize when we think no one knows the trouble we're in, no one knows the struggles we're going through, no one knows how we're feeling on the inside, no one knows what we, what we fear, what, no one knows what's, what we're, we're just anticipating is going to go wrong, God sees. And this is the story in, Exodus, in Genesis chapter 16 with the story of Hagar. And you think about Hagar, Hagar appears to be in, in the story of the Old Testament as someone who's just thrown on the, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, just thrown out in the, the outskirts of the land because she's not that important. And yet God sees and meets her need. So as we think about who God is, God is all this and much, much more. But we're going to look at a passage today in which God speaks about himself. And this just popped in my head. Have you ever wondered, I guess the older I get, the more I think this could actually happen. You know, I'm going to die sometime, you know. And you ever thought, I wonder what they're going to say at my obituary. Anybody ever thought about that? I wonder what they're going to say about themselves. You know, and I thought, well, maybe I could write it and they can just read it. You know, I, I'll, just, I'll just make sure they say the right things about myself. Well, you know, as we think about God and we, we say all kinds of things about God, we, we often will put God in our own image. We'll, we'll define God in the way we want to. And all you have to do to realize that people do that is when people say, well, my God wouldn't do that. Well, my God wouldn't do that. Well, I don't know. That's, that, that might be your opinion, but this book defines what God has done, is doing, and will do. And as we think about God wanting us to know who he is, he, he, he defines himself. And this passage, which is found in Exodus chapter 34, 6, and 7, which most of you have memorized, um, it's repeated possibly 12 times, not possibly, it's repeated 12 times the Old Testament. You know, if it's repeated 12 times the Old Testament, it means you probably need to get it down. I'm, I'm just badgering you, all right? But this is God speaking about himself. Let me read it, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations." And as you think about that, God reveals himself. And as you think about that, uh, some of those, we are amazed about how, how awesome God is, how amazing he is. But some of it causes us to step back and wonder, we need to understand that, that God's not messing around with people. That he's calling people to put their full confidence, trust, and faith in him. So what does God tell it like it is about himself? He, he calls himself compassionate. 
And again, if, if we were writing our own obituary or if we were describing our own self or we were writing the introduction uh, for us to come up to speak somebody, uh, you know, we might use some words that aren't necessarily accurate or true or completely um, revealing about who we are or what we've done. But when God says this, this is, it's not bragging when you can back it up, right? And it says that, that God is compassionate and gracious, abounding in love and kindness, and full of truth. But what does it mean that he's compassionate? The, 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 idea, the idea here is that, that he has a deep, tender love for someone in need. And so as the people of Israel were struggling with that because they were in need and they'd already gone through a period of time where they weren't deserving of God to, to rescue them, uh, he wanted them to look at it. As I look at you, I'm, I'm filled with compassion. In Psalm 103, verse 13, it says this, Just as the Father has compassion on his children, so that the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So if we want to picture what does it mean that, that Yahweh, and he repeats himself, I, I, I'm Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim. I'm the self-existent one. I, I am the, I'm the eternal one. I am, I am the true God. And, and this, is, this is my nature. I am compassionate toward you. I have a tender love for you. And, and so what we want to picture is it, imagine the, the most loving, caring father that, that either we've experienced or we've seen other people experience. And that's, that's how God wants to treat his people. And just like there are no perfect father, have you realized there's no perfect children? And yet a father that loves deeply his family, his first response is, I want to be compassionate. I like the passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, where, where Paul writes this, but we prove to be gentle among you. And now he switches the gender. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for their own children, having so uh, found, found an affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you have become very dear to us. And, and so maybe a better image, I know, I know in our family that would have been a, a better image. If you if you'd asked our kids, had asked or do are now asked, who was who the most compassionate uh, parent? Was it was it dad or mom, they wouldn't have to, they wouldn't have to struggle with that too, too long. Immediately, they would, they, would, they would say their mom. Because she was the one that was, when, when they messed up or they, they fell, she was the one who was tender with them. I was the one that said, just get up. You know, quit crying, you big baby. Okay, whatever it might be. All right. Is that, is, but as we think about God, and sometimes that's, that's the impression of God. He's, he's looking for us to mess up and respond in a harsh way rather than a tender way. So, so God, who had delivered them out of Egypt, God, who had just put down his hand of discipline on them, and we read that last week, he says, I want you to understand that at, at the heart of my heart, I'm compassionate. I have a tender love for you. I want to be like a nursing mother just caring for her young child. But essentially, as we think about compassion, compassion, the word compassion isn't used as many times as I thought it did in the Old Testament. It's used 13 times, and 12 out of the 13 times it's used for God, which really, he is the picture of that. But it's combined with compassion and, grace, and being gracious. And that was interesting as I be, did a little study on that, is compassion and graciousness are combined together out of, the, out of the 13 times it is used, 11 of the times is used together. 
So God is both compassionate and gracious. And the reason that has to be put together is because if God was only compassionate to us when we deserved it, you know, there'd be many times in our life, most of the times in our life, he wouldn't be so tender, right? He wouldn't be so caring. He, he wouldn't be so quick to come alongside and to lift us up when we've fallen. And so he combines compassion and grace. And, and what is grace? And I've defined that on your outline this morning this way. It's the strong one helping the weak one who is undeserving. And, and really, the, the reason that's defined that way is because you can want to be gracious, but you might not have the resources or power to be gracious. There are many times that, you know, I thought about, how can I help that person, but I don't have the means to help them. But God is the strong one who comes along, the weak one, to lift them up. But there's another passage I want to read to you about that, is we think, well, what, what part do we play in that? And as we think about it, in, in 2 Chronicles 39, it says this, For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive and return to this land. For the Lord, now here, for the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate, that's those two words put together, and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him or if you repent. Put another way, God is never ungracious or uncompassionate to people who turn to him. And, and, and probably the best story of that is the story of Jonah. And Jonah is known as the story of the big fish, story of being swallowed and then thrown up on the, on the land. And he goes and preaches a sermon. And, and, and trust me, people who preach or speak, you know, they want people to respond. They, they, they want people just to take everything they word and, and take it to heart and do it. Well, that wasn't Jonah's heart. He, he gave a very short sermon. I don't know if he spoke fast or slowly, but he, he very, you know, repent. You're, he, he didn't, you're, 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 God's judgment has come upon you. But the people of Nineveh, who are horrific people, they repented. And God was gracious to them. And he relented from bringing them judgment upon the land. And so as we think about who God is, he, he's that one who is tender and caring. He's the compassionate one. He's the gracious one who delights in helping those who are weak in need. And as we think about who qualifies, and no one qualifies, but if you want to do your part, our part, it's, it's when we return to him, when we repent of our sins. That's who God is. He's compassionate and gracious. But then he goes on, he says, and this again, God's speaking. This is not someone speaking about God, but this is God speaking directly. I'm abounding in loving kindness. And the idea there is, is his unfailing love is abundant in quantity and quality. The word Abounding is, you know, without measure, without, re without restriction. It's without qualification. And he says, as, as you think about really, again, the heart of the heart of God is, is that he has a steadfast love. He has a loyal love. It's the Hebrew word chesed. You know, where you just kind of clear your throat, chesed. And it really can't even be defined. It, it, it's, it's that God not only cares about you, not only loves about you, but it is a faithful love. And that is so unlike the people he has created, right? So often, you know, our, our love has, a, has, has qualifications all around it. And God said, my, my love for you is faithful. It's steadfast. It is loyal. And it's and it abundant. There is, no, there is no limit to it. And, and we're going to see the other side of it. Is he, that's, that's at the heart of God. 
And he said, I want you to understand, it, it, there, is, there, is no, there is no way to measure how much I care about you, how much I love you, how gracious I want to be toward you, how steadfast and loyal I'll be. But then he goes on, abounding in loving kindness and truth. And this really, again, almost modifies what he just said there. Some of them put these two words together. But really, what is he saying here? He says, his relationship is certain, dependable, authentic, and faithful. Think about that for a moment. The one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You know, that, that was the statement by Jesus. This is certain. You can depend upon this. This is something that's authentic. Again, I will be faithful to it. And so he, as he just speaks to a, a, um, a mediator, Moses, who's going to deliver this message to his people, he says, I, I want you to announce to them who I really am. I'm compassionate. I have a tender love for those in need. I am gracious. I'm, I'm the strong one who comes to help those who are weak. I, I'm the one abounding in loving kindness, a steadfast, loyal to love. And in and, and the New Testament, says that when we are faithless, God is always faithful. And, and then he says, I want you to understand, this is, this is true. Th- th- this is genuine. This, this is what you can depend upon. You know, sometimes the, the word truth is, is primarily used in opposition to that which is false. But, but true could be that which is which is right as well, and it's, it's, it's made truly. You know, as you think about all these chairs you're sitting in right now, it, uh, the reason you're, you're still, I guess, I don't know, you put that, still up and not on the grass right now is because those chairs are true. They're, 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 there's nothing wrong with them. They're, they're dependable. They, they can be rested upon. And that's what God is saying to his people. But then, but then he goes on and, and now we speak about, again, it's faithful, keeping loving kindness for thousands. And the idea there is that when God's love lands on a person or on people, it can, it can last for generations. And there can be a spiritual legacy among God's people. But then he goes on and, and then he says the things that cause us to realize God is all that, but he's also holy. Because then he goes on and says, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Again, that, this is the good news. Some were asking me this way, well, is there any distinction between transgression, forgiveness, and sin? And a quick way to say that, and forgiveness simply has the idea of lifting off the burden of our guilt. It has the idea of taking away. It has the idea of, of, of acquitting. But the word iniquity means the twisting of the truth. Transgression means the intentional willful rebellion. And those are the sins that those, as the Bible talks about, the high-handed sins. Those are sins in the, in the, in the face of God, we, we simply do what we want. We take what he says and twist it. We take, we take what we know he wants us to do and we rebel against it. We say no when it's so clear that God wants us to say yes. But also God is the one sin, missing the mark, is sometimes when we just make mistakes. When we, when we just mess up and it wasn't intentional and, and we are still guilty, but God is willing to acquit us of that as well. But he does say this about himself. However, I will not leave the guilty unpunished. 
visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And so we need to realize that God in the midst of all who he is, God is our judge. He, he is the one who will hold us all accountable for our sin. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said this about God, that God will not allow his children to sin successfully. What something means is he, he doesn't want any of us to get away from it, away with it. And, and there's two dimensions. It's, it's his own children. He doesn't want us to sin successfully. And, and for those who reject and rebel against him, they will, they will experience what they choose to experience forever being away from the presence of God in a place of judgment. He will visit their sin upon their lives. And, and when he thinks about it, he says, look, I'm going to visit the, the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren, the third and fourth generations. He, he's saying, look, I, I want you to understand that what you do impacts, influences other people. You need to realize that, that, that how you live will, will guide other people to live in that certain direction as well. And, and so I, you can look at statistically, we don't have time to look at it, but as you think about certain patterns of life, it, it, usually, it usually continues generationally. And he's saying you need to understand that that, that will happen and, and your sin not only impacts your life, but impacts other people's lives. Now, I, I do want to be very clear here that that we are not accountable for somebody else's sin. They and I, ourselves need to be responsible for our own lives. And God says that very plainly in, in Ezekiel chapter 18. And I'm just going to read the section. But in Ezekiel 18, beginning of verse 20, God writes through Ezekiel, the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment of the son's iniquity. The righteous of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Simply saying again, you're accountable for your own sin. But if the wicked man turns from all his sin, this is the goodness of God, which he has committed, and observes all my statutes and practices, justice and righteous, he shall surely live. He shall not he shall not die. So he said, look it, no matter where you have been in your relationship with God, you can turn from it and God will rescue you. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness which he has practiced. He will live. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? Rather than that, he should turn from his ways and live. But then he says another sobering word, but also a helpful word. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and does according to all the abominations that a wicked man does, will he live? All his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered for his treachery which he has committed and his sin which he has committed. For them he will die. Something what he's saying here is, as we look about accountability, we are accountable for our own sin. And again, as we realize that God is a gracious, compassionate God, desiring for people to turn from their sin and experience his forgiveness. And no matter where a person has been, they can still be forgiven. But if people somehow are holding on to their, their righteousness in the past and feel now they can live however they want to live, there's judgment for them as well. Now, now he's speaking about the, the temporal consequences of your sin, but there's a, an eternal picture of that as well. It is that God is calling each of us to recognize, you know, we're going we're gonna to reap what we sow. And not only us, it can impact others as well. 
And, and anyone can, can stop that cycle in terms of the patterns and examples you've lived among and lived in. But, but how are we living now is really what he's saying. I, I want you to understand that this is the God that, that he's calling us to, to believe in and follow. The, the God that is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. I don't even think I spoke about that. The whole idea of slow to anger, it, it comes from a word that has the idea of, of being long in terms of your fuse. In fact, it literally has the idea of having a, a long nose. And you think that's kind of a, a weird description of being slow to anger. But when, when people get angry, sometimes their skin turns a certain color, you know, it gets really red. And he says, look, I want you to know that, that when a person is willing to be slow to, to be angry, he, you know, he, 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 it, it goes long before that fuse gets lit. Slow to anger, bounding loving kindness and truth. But I want you to know this, the one who, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, he will visit the iniquity of fathers on children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And so as we think about God's call for us to understand the God's way out, it, it begins by understanding who is God. This God who fully revealed himself in Jesus, who, who came as the one who is Yeshua, the one who, who saves us from our sin, who is Emmanuel, God with us, who is the light of the world, who is the one in which he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one who was in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit reveals himself in both Testaments. But it's for the purpose of us to know who God is and to know him and to make him known. So as we, as we close this morning, I, I, I just invite you to make sure you know who the real God is. That you know him by name, not necessarily all his names, but you know that he has fully revealed himself in Jesus. And he is the one we believe in and turn to. Let's pray together. Dolor, I, I pray that each one of us today might know for sure who we believe in, who we trust in, who we've surrendered to. And Father, I pray that people might know that Jesus came to save us from our sin. And Father, I pray also that as we know him, that we might desire to live in such a way that we show how he is by being compassionate with people around us, by being gracious, by being slow to anger, by being steadfast in our love and our loving kindness toward others, that people can see Jesus in us and want to see Jesus in their lives. And we praise in Jesus' name.